Hello and welcome to Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sandlind and Talking Migration is supported by the University of Manchester. What options do refugees have to seek refuge? In her new book, No Refuge, Serena Parrick, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University in Boston, describes what she calls the second refugee crisis. This crisis means that the vast majority of refugees cannot find safety or conditions for a life in dignity. Whether living in a refugee camp, a city, or trying to seek asylum in a Western country, refugees lack protection of basic rights and face hard choices. Serena Parrick argues that this amounts to a structural injustice, and she joined me to discuss her book. I first asked her to give a brief summary of her book. So my book starts with the observation that when most people think about the global refugee crisis, they're picturing it from their own point of view. And for those of us who live in countries like the US or Canada, the European Union, the UK, we tend to think about it as a problem for our countries. In particular, we think about what it's meant for immigration over the last, say, five to 10 years. And we see, you know, um, Syrian refugees washing up on the shores in Italy. We think of Central Americans, you know, coming to the US to try to seek asylum. So the global refugee crisis is often framed as a crisis for us. You know, how are we gonna handle so many people? What does this mean for our economy and for our safety and so forth? And what I try to do in my book is to add a different perspective to this understanding of the global refugee crisis. I wanna help readers understand what the crisis means for refugees themselves, um, and not just what they have to go through to flee their country, but what it means to ask for refuge in any of these countries I've just mentioned. So while I think many people understand to some extent what it means to flee Syria and how tragic you know, the Syrian civil war is, um, you know, to some extent we have an understanding of these other conflicts around the world that produce refugees. I don't think we understand what it means to actually go to another country and ask for help and instead be given what I take to be three options, none of which provide access to basic human dignity. So what I try to make clear in the book is that refugees are experiencing a very different crisis. This is what I call uh, the crisis we have created or the second crisis. Uh, it's, the crisis is that we give refugees three options, uh, refugee camps, urban slums, or dangerous journeys to seek asylum. And none of these provide real options in the sense of options that any of us would be happy to have. And now this becomes a crisis when you add to these options the fact that once you become a refugee, you're likely to remain a refugee for a long period of time. I think many people think of refugees as being in a temporary state, in a transitional period, maybe a few months, maybe a couple of years. But the reality is that the average length of time you're going to be a refugee is 17 years and 25 years if you're fleeing war. So I hope that readers understand that this, that this is the real crisis for refugees, and it's related to how we respond to refugees and the options we offer to refugees when we provide help to them. Um, so in short, I think we need to take this seriously, that none of the options we provide refugees offer the minimum conditions of human dignity, and that our way of responding to refugees doesn't stand up to moral scrutiny. 
And once we take the situation as a whole, we realize it's this whole that deserves our moral attention and not just the individual parts that we sometimes focus on, say refugees fleeing their home countries or the resettlement process. So the global refugee crisis, I think, is that the vast majority of refugees remain in the global South, either in underfunded, insecure refugee camps or in urban settlements, but without any help from the international community for an average of 17 years with a less than a 1% chance of being resettled, while the other 10% take their chance on being smuggled in order to seek asylum in the rest, West, risking torture, sexual assault, and death. And so I think that there's no moral argument that can be given to justify this way of treating refugees around the world. And in fact, the opposite is true. There seems to be an overlapping consensus. If you survey any of the philosophical positions, any of the religious traditions, and including um, you know, nationalist positions, positions that argue that, that our obligations to refugees can be constrained. Everyone agrees that we still have to respect the human rights of refugees, but our current system of refugee protection doesn't. So the goal of the book, the overall hope of the book, is to bring the crisis, as I've just described it, into a philosophical conversation over what we owe to refugees. Brilliant. And the next question kind of follows on what you just finished on there. It's a bit um, methodological, I guess, about your approach. So the book contains a lot of detailed refugee stories. I actually sometimes find it a bit difficult to read it because it's quite uh, obviously some, some, very, uh, some very tragic stories. Um, and this, I guess, is quite unusual when it comes to political theory in general, um, but, but political theory books about, uh, about obligations to refugees, mostly we get more of a sanitized view with, not, with few real life examples. So I wonder if you could um, say a little bit about why you thought it was important to, to, to tell it as is, so to speak, uh, and how uh, such an approach should affect our theorizing or our way of thinking about it philosophically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the methodological question is really interesting for a book like this, because it was written not especially for political theorists, but it was written to be a trade book, so to be widely read and hopefully understood by people even without a background in political theory. And I tried to walk a very fine line between including stories that adequately express what I think to be very common experiences of refugees, and they're just profound insecurity and the almost routine violence they experience as being refugees. So to include that sense of life as a refugee, but without being sensational about it. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, the, the audience that I had in mind weren't necessarily political theorists. And I saw this book as kind of an antidote to the way academic philosophy is often done. And I think many political theorists and many philosophers believe that if we write a really good, compelling argument, we'll change people's minds. And I don't think that's necessarily true. And certain people have been writing about refugees for years and it hasn't shifted the conversation uh, largely. Um, but, and, and I believe in that. I think it's really important to have an argument. And I, try, I do try to make a philosophical, a coherent philosophical argument throughout the book. But I don't think we're purely rational beings. And I think we are often moved by stories, moved to at least open up parts of ourselves that can then reflect rationally on the arguments that I provide. So either, you know, we're not able to take in arguments because 
um, either we don't care or we're scared. And I think there is a lot of fear that surrounds our discussions of refugees, fear for what it means for um, economically, for our culture, for our security. And when I was writing this book, I was really influenced by the psychologist Tali Sherrod, who wrote a book called The Influential Mind. And she talks about how when we're talking about you know, serious political issues, facts very rarely change our mind. And in fact, what can shift us are these narratives or these stories. And she says, this is even true for those of us who consider ourselves you know, very rational and very moved by reasons. And she gives some personal examples herself of actually being um, moved to worry about vaccinating her children after hearing stories, even though she's a doctor and she knows perfectly well that that's not rational. Um, so I, I took this very seriously. And so I wanted to include stories just to allow people to open themselves up to think about refugees. Uh, but I also include stories of, at the very end and the conclusion, of people who go out of their way to help refugees. And I think this is also a helpful, it's helpful to realize that the status quo doesn't have to be the way it is, that this isn't the only way we can think about refugees and seeing that some people really live this out in their own lives can be helpful. And then finally, it is true that I did in, in a way have in mind philosophers and political theorists, because I, I sometimes feel like when, when we're writing about real topics like refugees and who should be considered a refugee, we sometimes forget that we're talking about real people. And when we exclude certain groups from the category of refugees, for example, so there's a debate, as you know, about who should count as a refugee and how should we define refugees to include some people and not others. It really felt like we were um, not taking seriously what it would mean for people who were excluded from our definition and the sense in which our definitions are always infused by power relations and inevitably lead to morally arbitrary outcomes. So I hope that using stories allows us to be a little bit more humble about our theorizing and to hopefully err on the side of inclusion rather than exclusion. I guess maybe perhaps that relates as well back to um uh to what you said in the introduction that you want to shift our focus a little bit away from just thinking about moral obligations as affecting us in the west um perhaps even as i don't know if you agree but perhaps even uh, as theorists or philosophers in the west we do have stories in mind but we have the stories in mind that are closer to us absolutely exactly and those are the stories that tend to benefit the status quo they, I mean, I think in the US context, at least, the stories you would hear most are the stories of the danger of refugees. And these would support politicians who then can come along and offer to protect us from these threats and these dangers. And, um, you know, I would give a lot of talks about refugees. And I would often hear from people who are very thoughtful, very considerate, you know, very kind and, and you know, people that they were afraid of refugees. And it really drove home what the point you just mentioned, that the stories that are, are in our culture right now of, of refugees are, are these very, very negative stories uh, about refugees that cause us to fear them. Or I think there are these very sanitized, like refugees as heroes, refugees mm -hmm. as coming into our country and you know, being Hannah Arendt and Vladimir Nabokov. And, and then 
it's, it's too high than anyone who is just an ordinary human being. We think, oh, what's the point of having them in our country? <laughs> so I think stories do work on a very deep level and it's important to have all kinds of stories play, play a role. <laughs> Uh, one of the stories that you tell that um, it's quite early on in the book that um, uh, it really affected me was about this w- uh, woman who was in the refugee camp Dab, um, but she wasn't safe there. So she essentially had to flee from the refugee camp, which is a side of the refugee crisis that, like you point out, we really don't often hear. And we, we sort of think, you know, once you're in a refugee camp, you're safe, that you, you can't be sort of a, a refugee again. So um, I don't uh, wonder if you could say a little bit more about how this kind of uh, refugee crisis should change our conversation about moral obligations to refugees. Yeah, I really like this question because this is exactly the point that I'm trying to make throughout the book. And I'm, and I'm glad that it kind of came across in the stories as well. So this is the second crisis. You know, many people think, oh, well, they have a refugee camp, like, great, they're getting food and shelter, and they're going to be safe. And like, we've, bravo, we've done our job, we pat ourselves on the back. But this is, in fact, just the start of a crisis to seek safety and to seek dignity. You know, many refugee camps do provide those goods in the short term, and many refugees are very, very grateful for them. But in the long term, you know, they don't provide dignity, they don't provide Um, the ability to uh, hope for a better future. And in some cases, they don't even provide security in the short term. So refugee camps are are very well known to be places that are endemic with sexual violence. And because people don't have the freedom of movement, if you are a victim of sexual violence, you often aren't free to leave that situation and to go somewhere else, to live with family elsewhere. You're also totally dependent on the international community once you become a refugee. Most countries forbid refugees from working. And because of that, if you want food, you have to be in a refugee camp. Now, you can leave refugee camps and work informally is the term, to work illegally in countries. Um, You may go to an urban center, you might seek out family or friends elsewhere. But in that case, you fewer than one in 10 refugees who live in urban settlements have access to help from the international community. So you're really stuck between a rock and a hard place. So one option is to go to a refugee camp, but then it's likely to be insecure, inadequate in terms of food and subsistence, total dependency, which many refugees think is uh, unbearable, again, for years, or you can leave and you can go to an urban center, but then you're on your own and you're working in, in very precarious conditions. You likely have to send your children to also to work. Housing is very dangerous and insecure, etc. So I think that that story sort of helps us to contextualize that the problem for refugees is that they don't get refuge in any of the places that we think of as providing them refuge and so have to move on from there. And then once we, we take seriously the lack of refuge in refugee camps or in urban settlements, it also helps to explain why people seek asylum in the numbers and the ways that they do in Western countries. So to receive asylum, of course, you have to be physically present in the country that you want to ask for asylum from. And this means that refugees have to undertake these really dangerous journeys because deterrence policies have tried to make voyages like this as dangerous and as difficult as possible. So they have to hire smugglers and they have to risk their lives and they risk sexual violence and other kinds of violence in order to do that. And a lot of times when we, when we hear about people you know, dying in boats or dying in the desert or 
you know, being misled by smugglers, we think like, why would they do that? That's so crazy. But going back to the story of this woman in Dadaab, you think, oh yeah, now I get it. You know, if you were fleeing, um, so in, if we're thinking of the same story, I'm thinking of a woman named Sina who was fleeing Eritrea and she couldn't stay in the camp in, in Eritrea and, and she couldn't stay in any refugee camp in Africa because the Eritrean government has spies and they would likely have forcibly brought her back to Eritrea. And she was pregnant and she knew full well with absolute certainty, she would be tortured and thrown into jail, likely have lost her child. And so really, if you were pregnant with your own child, you were trying to find security, her choice to then cross the Mediterranean in a raft, nine months, actually over nine months pregnant, doesn't seem as crazy as it would if you just saw her, you know, nine months, nine months pregnant in, in Greece. Um, so that's why I think it's really important to have stories like that and to really understand what the crisis is for refugees. So to move on a bit about to um, sort of uh, the end of the book where you talk about uh, where you cash out your argument uh, a bit, you uh, you argue that the refugee crisis is an example, or the second refugee crisis is an example of structural injustice. So I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that and what it implies uh, for the responsibility of states towards refugees. Sure. Um, I was trying to look for a way to think about how to understand the responsibility of Western states for refugees. And so by Western states, I mean sort of, you know, wealthy liberal democracies who explicitly pride themselves on um, equality, fairness, and human rights. How do we think about responsibility? And sometimes people will say, well, you're not doing enough. You should resettle more refugees or you caused, you know, a situation that produced refugees. So you invaded Afghanistan and you made 3 million people refugees and therefore you're responsible. And I found that this way of talking always led to an impasse because it led to people just saying, no, we didn't, you did this too, we're doing enough or something like that. And it just didn't seem to be very productive. So I use Iris Young's concept of structural injustice and develop her concept of responsibility in light of that. So I say, okay, hang on a second. What if we talk about the refugee crisis, not as the outcome of some you know, malicious, deliberate intent on the part of countries to try to make life as miserable as possible for refugees around the world. What if we see it in other terms? So a structural injustice is an injustice where something is morally wrong. So something bad has happened but nobody intended the outcome. And in fact, the injustice can be understood as everybody doing exactly what they're supposed to do. So I think Iris Young's example of this is sweatshops and it's really easy to see this as a structural injustice. So most people think that, you know, young women and girls laboring for 16 or 20 hours a day to make our cheap inexpensive clothes is an injustice and they shouldn't be suffering to make our clothes in the ways that they are. But who is responsible for this? You know, it's not the, the workers themselves. They're making the best decisions they can. You know, the, the gap or the factories that make the clothes, the companies, they're doing what they think of as being their responsibility maximizing profits to stockholders, trying to maximize revenue. Um, and then all the way down the line, the managers, the consumers, everyone's doing what they think they should be doing. Everyone's acting according to morally acceptable norms and rules. And yet nonetheless, it's an injustice. 
I think that this is how we should see the global refugee crisis. Whenever I tell people that fewer than 2% of refugees has access to any kind of real solution, either resettlement or returning home, most people acknowledge that this is an injustice and that everyone else has to live in refugee camps or without aid in urban centers. But I don't think anyone deliberately set out to be for things to be this way. But I do think it is the result of every country acting according to its own interests, which again is a morally acceptable norm. So countries are setting their own immigration policies, countries are securitizing their borders because they feel like this is in their interests, either politically or economically. And we're setting up deterrence policies because we see this as a way of enforcing our own immigration standards. But the outcome when every country acts like this is that fewer than 2% of refugees get refuge and everyone else has to live without access to the minimum conditions of human dignity. So once we understand the refugee crisis as a structural injustice, we can then talk about responsibility, which I think of as slightly different than guilt. You know, it's to say like, okay, the US, you're responsible for Afghan refugees because you, you know, launched the invasion of Afghanistan. The US says, no, but we, you know, we did it to fight the Taliban. We're the good guys here. So responsibility instead asks how we are connected to the injustice and then looks for ways that we can um, not punish people for the harm that was done in the past, but to make things more just in the future. So it's not backward looking, but it's forward looking. It says, look, Here's where we are. The structural injustice is there. We've contributed to it. We benefit from it in some ways. How can we make things better in the future? Um, I just want to add that I do absolutely think that there are direct injustices, direct ways in which countries harm refugees and asylum seekers deliberately and intentionally. And this ought to be part of our conversation. But I think that this part of it is more readily pointed to and acknowledged as a harm. So if you take the child separation policy in the US in 2016 and 17, and that was absolutely horrific and I hope it will come to be seen as a crime against humanity, but it was at least widely acknowledged as morally repugnant, not by everyone, maybe even by too few people, but it, the people said, look, you can't do this to children. You can't continue to torture children and take them away from their parents for the sake of imposing an immigration norm on you. So we should keep doing that. And that's part of the injustice. But I think the larger question is this question of structural injustice. And how do we begin to unwind it? How do we begin to deal with it better and respond to it in a more just and effective way. Again, not because we're guilty, not because we're horrible people and selfish countries, but because we've contributed to this outcome that we now realize is an injustice. So before I, uh, um, before I ask you a bit about the solutions and how to improve it, like you said, more forward looking, um, there was just one thing that I thought about when I read your book, and I know you did, um, you do mention it as well. So a lot of the time you hear from people who want uh, Western countries to have more restrictive asylum policies. Their argument is sometimes that we should focus more on what you call the second refugee crisis or on all of the refugees who do not get asylum in a Western country. So they might argue, for example, that we should redirect funds away from asylum in the West towards improving conditions in camps and urban settlements. And they see it as kind of a trade-off that Western countries spend so much money on, for example, 
uh, asylum determination processes in Western countries uh, and that all this money could be better spent in, for example, refugee camps or, um, or helping refugees elsewhere. Uh, and you do say that you don't agree with this uh, kind of argument and this is this kind of trade-off. So I was wondering if you could, um, yeah, if you could say a little bit about why you think that is and how we could sort of create a political climate that wants to address both of these crises. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, you know, I sometimes, often when I hear that argument, I feel like it's disingenuous because I think it's often meant to be like, well, let's take this pot of money and redirect part of it to refugee camps. And that's not going to help refugees. <laughs> right? Refugee camps are structurally unable to provide refugees with the minimum conditions of human dignity. So I sometimes think that this is made in bad faith, that it is just a way of uh, shirking our responsibility to refugees. But what if somebody who actually genuinely made this argument? How would I respond to that? Um, I, uh, as you mentioned, I don't think it's a necessarily one-to-one -one trade off either we do this or we do that. Because I think that we could be doing a much more economically effective job of helping refugees in the global south. You know, Betts and Collier write that refugee camps have the, the rare folly, as they say, of being both inhumane and expensive. So refugee camps as the, the, the go-to way of helping refugees is the least economically efficient way to help refugees. And so if we really wanna have this economic debate over trade-offs and costs, the first thing we ought to be thinking about is how to more effectively support refugees and host countries in the global South in ways that are economically effective and I think potentially even beneficial to those countries. Um, so one example would be to support, rather than you know, just funding refugee camps, which are you know, oppressive in many ways, to fund things like public-private partnerships that would give you know, preferential trade status to companies that employed refugees and increase revenue to increase tax revenue for, for host countries. So this would help refugees who would then be allowed to work and given the autonomy and the dignity of taking care of themselves and their families, it would help the, the local economy because companies would feel like refugees. Oh, it's great that refugees are here, you know, it's helping us. And it would help the host countries themselves who would be actually benefiting from having refugees living in their countries. So there's no shortage of sort of these economically creative ways of helping or these creative ways of helping refugees that are actually much more economically sound ways of doing it. Um, cash transfers, many people have argued, are much more effective at helping refugees and helping the local economy than our current structure. So I'd say first, before we, we throw out the baby of asylum and resettlement with the bathwater, we can look at the ways that we are actually helping refugees in the global south and think about doing them in a, in a more economic way. Um, I also think about resettlement though that it, it should be expanded <laughs> um, and asylum should be expanded as well. And, but I do think there should be much more global cooperation. There's no reason why more countries shouldn't be resettling refugees and we shouldn't be doing it in a more equitable way. If we really thought of this as a global common good, which I think is how we ought to be thinking about it, rather than you know, just a harm each country is sort of batting away by itself. But I really like the end of your question, the question about creating political will. 
And I think in a way, this is the million dollar question, of course. And I've been thinking about this recently in regards to two things in current politics. One is the incoming Biden administration in the US, which has promised to sort of restart the US refugee uh, resettlement program in earnest, which had been just you know, in, in terrible shape under the Trump administration and the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. And I think the connection is, is this. I think those of us in the US who care about refugees should be preparing for a backlash. If Biden raises the resettlement cap to 125,000, as he said he's going to, and we still have enough of an infrastructure to make that happen, I think that the same thing that's gonna happen that happened at the end of the Obama administration will happen in the Biden-Harris administration, which is to say right-wing pushback against refugees on the basis of fear-mongering. You know, they're terrorists, they're economic drains, they're criminals, et cetera. So I think we should be prepared. And when I think about this, I think we can look to see how public health officials have talked about the rollout of the vaccine. I remember in the summer, these surveys would come out that you know, a quarter of people, 40% of people maybe would get the vaccine when it was ready. And I think people took this to heart and really focused on how to message and how to communicate about the COVID-19 vaccine to avoid the worst of the backlash against it you know, because it's such an important thing that everybody gets it. They made clear the benefit, they gave clear evidence, and there was lots of like sort of public visibility about the importance of this vaccine. Uh, and they included, I thought this was really important. So the Biden team, the Biden COVID team includes two people who they're public health officials, but they're also really good at communicating public health messaging. Um, Atul Gawande and Vivek Murthy. And this is what we should be doing for refugees. We should be learning the, the message or the, the lesson of the COVID-19 vaccine around refugees. So let's make it really clear that terror, refugees are not terrorists. Not only are they not economic drains, they're actually great economic investments. Um, and we can talk about all the important cultural um, benefits that they bring to our countries. And as well, you know, we can include the fact that this is a moral, this is a question of justice. This is something that is owed to people around the world. And I think what my book does is to make this case, but I think it needs to be communicated really broadly. Like we have nothing to lose from gaining refugees and, and a lot to gain. Um, so this is where political will comes in. You know, if we impose this, we can do it. We'll do it for the next four years, maybe the next eight years, then there'll be another round of backlash. But if we communicate really well around it, we can get a broad, a broad swath of political will to support it. And then I think once we do, we can maybe start to think about these issues more broadly. And what, you know, what I'm calling for is, like, is a kind of moral leadership or humanitarian mm. diplomacy around the world. And I think that can happen, especially if people are supportive of refugees you know, in the US and the UK and so forth. Just to be clear, you still think even if, um, even if we introduce or if Western countries do all these more economically efficient uh, ways of providing refuge, um, then they should still be providing asylum. So they yeah, should still, absolutely. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure, for sure, for sure. I mean, these are all, you know, different facets of providing refugees dignity. 
So I think of the economic solutions as being short-term ways of ensuring that refugees, while they're in this temporary state, are able to access the minimum conditions of human dignity. But they still need solutions. And there are some people who will never be able to go back to their home countries at any point. And for them, asylum and resettlement are the only hope for the future. And without that, you know, the, the whole structure of refugee assistance falls apart. And I think it's also hard to convince, you know, Kenya, Bangladesh, um, these countries that host millions of refugees that they should keep doing that when we ourselves are doing nothing. So absolutely, these, these pieces all have to go together. I think my argument is just while we're working out solutions, refugees need dignity. We can't neglect how we treat them in these um, you know, limbo periods. And I think largely we have done that. So just finally, you've already mentioned a few uh, a few solutions to to the second refugee crisis. But if there's anything, uh, you list quite a few in the end. So I was wondering if you want to talk a little bit more about some of the others that you mentioned. Sure. You know, I think there's no shortage of creative solutions for how we could respond to refugees in ways that support the minimum conditions of human dignity. So once we realize that this is missing and that it's essential. There's a, you know, a number of policies we can choose from and a number of really creative people who have been thinking about these things. But maybe just to highlight one facet that I haven't mentioned so far. It's, um, it, it's autonomy. It's, so what refugees um, dislike most about being refugees, well, there's many things, but one of the things they dislike most is not being able to be in control of their lives. So you might think, oh, they need, they want food, they want to come to the US, or, but what they really want is to work and to be able to communicate and create and connect with people. So what does that mean? Well, that means supporting jobs rather than refugee camps, but it also means taking seriously things like Wi-Fi, um, direct cash transfers, electricity, all of those things are the the kinds of things that fly below the radar if you're just thinking of survival. But if you're thinking of long-term dignity, what refugees need are the things they need for autonomy. And this is gonna be different for women. You know, most people don't think about that. What, what do women, well, they need sanitary products as a basic facet of basic requirement for dignity to go out in the world and do things. Um, which people have pointed out is also true for women prisoners in the US. So having, a, so, so this is part of it. How do we figure this out? Well, I think refugees need more representation and genuine representation, not just the sort of token, like look at this great refugee who set up a shop here or look at this woman who got an education, but to actually have a voice when we're talking about refugee policies and processes and programs. Um, like to have a refugee council that genuinely represented the interests of refugees. So I think all of those need to be part of how we think of responding to refugees in the global South. But we also need solutions. We also need to be able to, to allow them to go home when they're able to in voluntarily in dignified ways. And we need much more resettlement. You know, sometimes people hear like, oh, 25 million refugees, like, oh, that's impossible. But, you know, Alex Elienkov will point out that like, look, we're in a world of 8 billion people. 25 million refugees is actually not that many to be resettled. You know, a few hundred thousand here, a couple hundred thousand there. You know, if we had had a better process of assimilating 
Syrian refugees during the Syria, the refugee crisis in Europe in 2016, we could have handled it much, much better. And in many Western countries that have these aging workforces, they could have been this net gain, this net economic gain for people. So, so there's lots we can do in terms of the policy sphere, and there's lots we can do as individuals. You know, often at the end of talks, people often say, well, that's all fine, but what can I do? And I think right now it's so important to think about how we can contribute to undermining the structural injustice. And a way that's so important is just to understand the global refugee system as structural injustice and to learn about it, to talk about it, to read about it, to read the accounts written by refugees about their lives and to look at the ways that we can undermine this. And I really do think there's, there's a moment where we can be prepared to respond to the inevitable backlash against refugees that's going to happen. And so we need to think about how we can educate ourselves, how we can communicate, how we can organize to avoid that. And I always say that, you know, this isn't going to be easy. And it's really, it's really easy to get trapped into what Hannah Arendt called um, either reckless optimism or reckless despair. And reckless optimism says, all right, we're going to do this. Let's solve refugees. And that quickly turns into despair when you realize, oh, that's not, it's not going to be a quick solution. It's not an easy fix. This is going to be an ongoing um, challenge that's going to require a kind of sustained moral motivation. And so we fall into despair and feel like there's nothing we can do. And it seems hopeless. I'm guilty of this sometimes. Um, but we do need to remember that this is an ongoing process. If you want to talk about climate refugees, this is going to be intensified. And we need to think about ways that all human beings can live with dignity, regardless of where they are. Um, seeking refuge or what kind of help they're asking for. And so I think there's lots we can be doing and there's lots of reason to hope that this is something that can be done. You can find links to Serena Parikh's excellent book, No Refuge, in the episode notes. But that was all for this time. Thank you for listening.